0: Operation Confidence proudly presents America's Invisible Heroes radio talk show. Tune in weekly on Sundays from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Pacific time with your host, Ken Mackey, co-host, U.S. Air Force veteran Matt Davidson, announcer Taylor Marcella, U.S. Army veteran and Strategies for Hope segment host Dr. Kathy Cash, U.S. Army Reserve veteran and entertainment segment host Charles Whitehead. U.S. Army Special Forces Veteran and I Once Was Whole, segment host, Richard Cook. U.S. Army Veteran and Lifeline for Women's Veterans, segment host, Martha Elena Varela. National Faith Director, Chaplain, and Veterans in Recovery, segment host, Anthony Akambora, And U.S. Air Force Veteran and Incarcerated to Success, segment host, Kevin Lewandowski. For more information or to be a guest on our show, email info at
2: hey well welcome everyone and thank you for tuning in to american's invisible heroes a show that was created to provide all type of resources and and exper- ex- experiences for our wonderful wonderful veterans that we're off- offering to support yes operation confidence is the grassroots nonprofit organization and we're happy to be here today with our new new uh cohort i'm sorry our new uh, yeah, partners involved. But anyway, aside from that, uh, no, I'm not a veteran. But my heart goes out to our American uh, heroes, especially those veterans who have disabilities and may be experiencing homelessness. For those who are new to the show, we want to let you know that America's Invisible Heroes was established to provide a platform for our veterans to be able to share their experiences, heartfelt stories, resources, and accomplishments. Now, I'd like to invite you to introduce our co host for today. We have U.S. Army Reserve Veteran Charles Whitehead. He's also a board member. We have U.S. Army Veteran Martha Varella. She's on our advisory board, and she has a segment every other week called Lifeline for Women Veterans. We have Dr. US Army veteran, Dr. Wendy Children. She has a bi monthly segment called Living Life Completely. And then we have a new member to the team. That's Sean Brown. He has a monthly segment called He's the Lone, the lone Coach. Go ahead, Mr. Brown. And then we have Ann Monique. She has a bi monthly segment. She's a bi monthly segment host and
3: it's all about the Rosie's movement. Take it away, Ann. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Before we go any further, I want you all to know that we have a Rosie the Riveter on the line. Her name is uh, June Robbins. I'm in uh, Charleston, West Virginia. She's uh, in Philadelphia or very near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And what I'm going to talk with you about um, just for a few minutes here, not taking a lot of time, but. Consuela and I and our organization have worked together for over a year. I'm Who's counting, I don't know, but a, a good while. And we decided that what we wanted to do now is just review some of the ways that um, uh, we are trying to pull America together with our Rosie the Riveter projects and that uh, Operation Competence is definitely taking a leadership role. One of the things we need to clarify early on is that our mission in our organization, which is called Thanks Plain and Simple, is to create projects that should be done in America and do such a good job that the rest of the country joins in. So that's all about unity. And then a second part of that is when possible to include veterans. It's very important that we find the right veterans who are eager and capable of essentially showing what can be done in America that's not being done. So um, the Operation Confidence has a piece in the American Rosie Movement. Any individual that wants to be involved uh, has a piece. What we consider to be a movement is um, essentially getting the public to change their attitudes and their uh, goals so that we get really focused on improving America and not so much on, um, you know, individual projects or individual, um, I would call, you know, social systems, uh, politics. And, and can ask you things. do me a favor and share who are the
2: Rosies, Rosie the Riveters, and the Rosies movement for our audience mm-hmm. and radio the, listeners.
3: The, the Rosies are the women who worked on the home front in World War II. Uh, you know what? I don't think I screen shared with you all. I'm so sorry. Let me. Okay,
2: well, I can do that. Just finish telling us who okay. they are.
3: So the Rosies means the women who worked on the home front in World War II. So they're called Rosie the Riveters, but it's a very bad name. And I gave up trying to change it because it's so entrenched. But these are women who, um, the youngest we know is 94. My mother was a Rosie, so I'm considered to be a Rosebud. And these women, uh, there were as many women working on the home front as there were men in the military in World War II. It's quite an astounding number. Now they did everything from, make boots to prepare food, to um, make the ships, rivet airplanes. Uh, and lots and lots of people worked in offices of one sort or another, especially in Washington. So I've put 14 years into this, um, essentially thinking that I was, would be successful if I found 14. We found 14 the minute that we got an ad in the newspaper. and. Um, so we've put 14 more years into it since that time. The lady that's on the line here, um, June, are you a lady? I am here. Um, are you a lady? That's the question.
4: Uh,
3: I think so. You think so, good. That's great. Um, How old is June? June's 96. And <laughs> she's a whippersnapper. <laughs> she's a whippersnapper. Uh, so June, um, why don't we just take a minute here and let June Take about, say, three minutes, June, and tell them what you did through World War II. Well,
4: let's see. I was in high school at age 17, and uh, the war was happening. The boys were leaving uh, to go to war, and uh, my parents were divorced, and I just knew I had to do something. I didn't ask anybody's permission. I knew I had to do something to help the war effort and to go with my mother. So I talked to uh, my uh, homeroom teacher, and he suggested that uh, I might be interested in doing uh, mechanical drawing. Well, there were only boys in that class, and that didn't bother me, uh, if it didn't bother me and it didn't bother them, what's the difference? So uh, I did join that class, which meant that I would miss four other classes. Uh, The teachers covered for me. They marked me present, although I was absent through four classes every day. Uh, They gave me a terrific course and taught me extremely well. And uh, when I got to a certain point, the teacher sent a letter to the Philadelphia Navy Yard, where my mother was also working. But she was on the aircraft side. Uh, She did the punch press, drill press worked on the inside of uh, airplanes and also did the barriers on the uh, flat tops, the uh, aircraft carriers. We never talked about anything that my mother did. I didn't find out what she did until after the war. Uh, They gave the women and me, I was considered a kid, but not a woman yet. Uh, And uh, they gave us uh, over 80 hours worth of hands-on Teaching uh, from uh, drilling to uh, welding, you name it, we did it. If it had to do with the ship, even to the board one ship, to show us what it looked like. And uh, they placed me in the Department at o- for- the O45 building. Uh, there were quite a few women there. They were wonderful to me. They gave me the protection that all gives me, and they were so cooperative and wonderful. Uh, I did a mechanical drawing. They gave us, gave me the name of uh, engineering draftsman. Imagine that, a 17-year-old, an engineering <laughs> draftsman. What we learned on the job, most of us learned on the job, teach us well and we will do perfect work. We knew we had to do perfect work because one little mistake could cost a man his life. And we knew that. We bonded together, we had, the, we women had a uh, softball team, we had a bowling league, and I was included. And I think one thing that really touched my heart when I was there, uh, I hadn't heard from my boyfriend who was in the service. He was the uh, starboard wing gunner and a B-24 in the Navy. And I hadn't heard from him for two weeks. We had been exchanging letters much more frequently than that and uh, I mentioned to one of the women that I hadn't heard from him and she showed me an article in the newspaper where the plane had crashed on that uh, field where he was was stationed and I was frightened. Well, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, and whatever they took me to a church in Philadelphia and we went in there and lit candles and said prayers not just my boyfriend, but for all the service people, and it just gave me such a wonderful feeling to know that we were a family. We were doing things to help the war effort, and uh, we did quite well. Uh, president Roosevelt uh, came through the Navy art That was quite interesting to see our president. They gave us USO shows, and many others. Uh, not only did the uh, work during the war, but we were U.S.O. We hostesses, and we went to school at night, as I did, to try to catch up on my uh, diploma. And by the way, and I received my high school diploma through the good graces of the chaplain of the four chaplains. And <laughs>
2: I was absolutely astounded and thrilled and cried through the whole thing. When did you receive it, Joan? Her, her diploma? Several weeks ago. Oh, my goodness. How many years yes, was that?
3: You were 95, uh, I believe, weren't you, June? You were yes. 95, yeah? And this yes. this is a bona fide uh, diploma. It's not an honorary diploma. They gave her a bona fide high school diploma at 95 wow. years <laughs> old. <wow. Yes, laughs> you know, Congratulations.
4: Thank you. Mm-hmm. But they felt that I deserved that I helped my father with a college course that he was having difficulty with and we discussed it. He passed his course and he thanked me for helping him. And when my boyfriend went to Temple University, he did not like English and I loved English. So uh, I wrote this report for him and he <laughs> copied it. I gotta see, uh, had I really been a college student, I would have known to write more and uh, how to write it uh, better. But uh, I could do it now. But you, I would then. And he got a good
3: mark. You said you got to be. You mean uh, you and he got to be, right?
4: Yes. yes
1: that
4: was it. <laughs> <laughs> he funny, got the credit. You Marvel.
3: did the work. What's new? <laughs> well,
1: so wonderful. Thank you.
3: <laughs> so Man,
2: that, we want June to come back on again. Well, she's always welcome on the always
3: show. Always welcome. Yes, for sure. Yeah, so. Um, What we need to talk about today, you want to go into the let me do the screen share then, uh, Consuela? Uh,
2: Yeah, I've already marked you as a a Um, co host.
3: Well, for some reason,
2: there you go. What's
3: happening here? Um, Screen, you can see your screen, but
1: you have to pull up your Mm. document.
3: Well, it is minimized, but it looks like uh, something. You have going to. Uh,
5: happening. Hold on. Uh, uh, yes. Maximize, maximize it first and then do the share. So stop sharing right now and then maximize it and then do the share. Okay. Minimize you going to see it. Tell me again, oh. Charles.
3: So, so. I didn't. Tell me stop again.
5: Sharing right now. Stop the share. Stop the to
3: share. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, ma'am.
5: That's at the top. It should be the green button that says uh, stop your viewing or stop this. It's probably stop share share at the very top in the middle.
3: Um, The green. Green button. Mm.
5: In the top middle of the Zoom uh, window.
3: Okay, Hold on. (laughs) Um, I'm stopping the share. Okay. Did that.
5: Okay. There now, you go. We're back. Now, Can go now, back bring in? your document up. Yeah, if you have it minimized, you know, uh, bring it out full, or, or okay. you know, so it's not minimized.
3: Is, is it coming yeah. up? Yeah. There.
2: There. there
5: you go. Are you
3: seeing it? Okay. Good. Yeah. All right. So um, I want to let you know that um, Consuela is very kindly offered that on the 13th, that would be two weeks from today, I will give a more full presentation. But what I wanted to do today is um, give this introductory, if you will, um, summary of why we feel that um, Operation Competence is leading the way in the American Rosie Movement. So the American Rosie Movement is to get people all over the country to find these women who are still living, and even if they can't find the living ones, to honor them by doing the quality and work that the women did. Um, Pull together, do the highest quality work and do it in a spirit of cooperation. That's what the women did. It took me about two years to hear that. What I was mostly hearing is exactly what they did and delighted to get to know each one like June. But then I began to see that The overall message is to pull together, do highest quality work, do it in a spirit of cooperation because if we don't as a nation, we're basically losing our freedom. We've got to face the problems that we have in a cooperative way. So you all have a piece in the American Rosie movement. One uh, example of very recently is that on uh, Labor Day, we always ring bells for Rosie's. So, Three of the members here on uh, I guess. Um, there was uh, ten uh, on our on my
2: team. I didn't hear you. Didn't there, hear
3: were,
2: you. there were ten
3: uh, yeah. from operation comp and I just I just gave you oh, I just have three examples. Oh look at here. that ugly picture. I know you have other things to do today, <laughs> but I love these pictures. what you say,
2: <laughs> what'd you say, Martha? Look at that
3: blurry picture of me. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, All right. I love that picture of you. Now, this is what I really want to concentrate on because you know it really has the content. Um, how is American? How is Operation Competence uh, leading uh, the American uh, leading in the American Rosie movement? So when we go to people and we say, "Do you want to be part of a movement?" They get glassy eyed and they have no idea what we're talking about, and it does it sounds like hocus pocus to them. But what we've found that people need five things in order to join in and be cooperative across America. First of all, they want a reason to pull together. And we have found over these 14 years that community after community, if we only had the money, we could have had at least 500 communities by now. But community after community uh, believe that the Roses are worth uniting around, no matter what kinds of religious or political or uh, other differences there are. They lay those aside and they say, no, I wanna do something to honor these women. I wanna know more about what they did. And I'm going to essentially take part in some way. So people need a reason to pull together. And I believe we're giving America a good reason. The second thing they need is uh, they need to see others doing something they don't want to be the first they don't want to be guinea pigs. Um, We now have done 22 different projects. We've named the first government building in America, the Rosie the Riveter building. We've named Interstate Bridges. Uh, June is working now on getting a mural in uh, in a very large building um, in Philadelphia and it goes on. So there's 22 different projects. Um, you all have done a great job because you're interviewing a Rosie every other week and uh, finding them and interviewing them and getting the public to know who they are, really are as people. It's not facts and history books. It's really connecting people through these very human stories. The third thing that they need to know is um, that they'll be guided when they uh, take part in the movement. They don't want to say, okay, you choose a project, and they choose a project and there's nobody there to tell them what to do and um, basically guide them. The fourth thing that people need, and we're talking about the public now, is um, they need to get credit for what they do. Um, It's clear that one of the facts of human nature is that people can do very creative things and be first Put a huge amount of time and money into it, and the next thing you know, somebody's taking credit for it, and the person who did the most work and who had the original idea is left out. So, um, whatever uh, you this group does or anybody does, we want to make sure that they they get credit for what they do. Um, So, for example, Operation Confidence and Thanks have an MOU, and we we're uh, always looking for ways to uh, strengthen each other. The final thing is um, that people want to know that they, uh, what they do will be part of something bigger. So we always say, um, we quote Aristotle, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I don't know anything that's more factual than that. You know that piece by piece um, things simply don't have the dynamics that they do, is, uh, is uh, that they would have if they come together. Um, so, we've always believed that um, Operation Confidence and your work here, not only just to interview the Roses, but uh, one of our long term plans with Consuelo and, and the group here is as she builds um, essentially a community for veterans, for homeless veterans. We hope that there will be at least a Rosie Park, if not even possibly a, a um, essentially a, a museum there where um, the different things that we've done and found in photos and um, signatures of famous people that we've gotten and so forth. Would be. So that's
2: the promise. That's for sure.
3: Yeah, that I know you have sure. a lot
2: more to show, but we're running out of time. Yeah, no I know. I want you to be able to elaborate on the on 13th, the whole project. and What you're let, doing. Let me
3: do just this one little bit. And I, because I want you all to add to this, the common goals between Operation Competence and Thanks is that uh, we are improving the way we, our goal is to improve respect for veterans. For women's contributions, for people's potential, and for providing that uh, are proving that people can do awesome things when we unite. If you all see any other unity, um, you know, way that we are uh, working together, let me know. Um, and um, we are acting together to interview the Rosies, uh, who represent um, all these things that are there that we just named, we need to ring a bell for Roses and um, you um, attend some of the events virtually, and Consuela, I was so pleased that she um, was, I presented to the Harvard Club of DC a week or so ago, and she came in on the line. I think she added so much to that because to be very honest, these are very sophisticated people, and I don't know that they typically understand and work with, what I consider people uh, who really give all at their, at their local level. And I think Consuelo added a, a lot to that. Well, oh, so that's so you're, sweet of you.
2: I didn't do anything, but I think you did a phenomenal presentation. I was so proud of you. And
3: right. I want
2: you to share more on 13th, but okay. as I said, we're out of time. We all have right. other guests and, waiting. And, uh, uh,
3: that's good, and I'm gonna, June, you can stay on the line as long as you'd like, okay?
2: Yeah, June, we you always welcome girlfriend.
3: Okay, good enough. All right. I'm putting you up close to the mic. So can
2: you uh
3: pick up just do
2: it? Take off your screen share.
3: Oh, okay. Oh, I've forgotten how. How do I do it? Here. Stop.
1: Uh, green button.
3: There, there we go. There you go.
1: Okay.
3: Back back home again.
2: Okay, great. Bye, June.
3: She's going to stay on the line a while and listen.
2: Okay, great. Thank, Thank you, June. That was a
1: great presentation.
3: Take okay. it away, Martha. Okay. Uh, female
1: veterans often find themselves caught in a double bind when discussing their service due to the assumption that they are not considered veterans. So this sometimes can be multi-layered. if you talk about combat veterans, if you were a female who saw combat or a female who did not see combat. Um, and that ever ending saga of discussion. Um, Over the course of the last year, um, and I'm again, just paraphrasing an article here, um, that had an opportunity to engage with over a hundred service women and female veterans to help get an understanding of how their experience was on active duty. Um, And again, this concept of identifying as veterans. Um, Some of the women had served with and had close friends, um, people who you know, in in the experience, you come to be close friends with. Um, maybe you didn't know at first until you kind of get into uh, basic training and all that good stuff. So you you identify or you come up with these um, or develop relationships with people that that you just met. Um, some women, um, you know, you serve were were strangers who responded. Um, you know, to, and again, I'm just paraphrasing where the information is coming from in this interview. So this person uh, wanted to make sure she got an array of interviewing people who came from decades of service, different service, every walk of life, ethnicity, sexual orientation, service branch, and military occupational specialty to kind of get a broad view of of if women think the same um, in terms of their uh, experience identifying as veterans. Now service women are promised that they join a brotherhood at enlistment or commission, but oftentimes this is only to find out that women um, are constantly treated as they are, though they are the outsiders. So they interviewed a Marine veteran named Mary, who we'll refer to in this article as Mary. So Mary says, most male veterans don't identify us as veterans, but as additions to the service that happen to be there. And she hopes that it changes. I understand it's subjective. It's not the only thing that women want, but women don't have recognition, oftentimes don't get recognized for what they do, not in the service and not after the service. Service women are acutely aware of their visibility as a minority while in uniform and their invisibility as veterans. To be a woman in the military is to live with coexisting identities that are dissonant with conventional gender roles. It is to live with the greatest empowerment and to feel isolated, invisible, and misunderstood, both by the institution in which one serves and by the society whose constitution one is sworn to protect. It is why when many women leave the military, they choose not to identify as, or choose not to self-identify as veterans. So service women are also promised that they are joining a brotherhood at enlistment or commission, um, again, finding that it's a little bit more difficult to get some of the benefits that they're entitled to. And it's interesting, we're kind of going to hear a little bit more um, up from our guest today, kind of a, what that um, causes like both mental distress and sort of that social and emotional um, impact that it has when you're constantly feeling like you have to fight to get the benefits that you were promised or, you know, um, awarded when you enlisted um, in the very beginning of your service. So now we'll hear a little bit from Jane, um, who was an Army veteran. She served in special operations in the 1980s. And her husband was also a veteran. And she explained that identifying it as a veteran is is often a frustrating hassle. Sometimes it feels confrontational. I've had people say, Oh, your husband served, because I've, you know, she's shown her ID, and usually they'll they'll ask uh, for the husband. The assumption is that the male is the veteran. And she would constantly have to reply, "Yes, we both served." A lot of people are unaware and sometimes um, don't realize that that, in a way, is rude. Um, but the assumption is there clearly, right? That it's the male who's the veteran and not the female. Um, other times, it took a minute just to kind of educate people when she, were, she was asked that a little bit about you know her service to help bring awareness. And sometimes people just don't want to bother, so you just avoid the question altogether. Um, the growing civil military divide in the United States affects both male and female veterans, and both are likely to encounter ignorant questions such as, did you kill anyone? Uh, Yet there's a fundamental difference between male and female veterans upon leaving the service. Male veterans tend to go from being part of a tightly knit, cohesive military unit to feeling out of place um, in their communities at home as well. So there's, there's, some transition uh, stress that's related to that. Women go from being visible outsiders in the military to being invisible outsiders in their community. So kind of a double uh, a double whammy there. you're kind of dealing with already the stress of what that was like in the service and it getting worse when you get out of the service, which I could agree is was true for myself as well. But while they both experience this transition stress, um, associated with the loss of the tribe when you leave the military. Male veterans who do choose to participate in the veteran community will find at least a healthcare system and some sort of source, social organization that are set up to meet their needs. Um, women do not and may not even ever find this organization and institution um, to replicate the very same challenges, which could range from being you know, frustrating to threatening that they, anything that they experienced um, to this magnitude while they were on active duty. So it's almost less inviting or, you know, not having an organization or an institution to kind of help in the same capacity that the male counterparts do. So, for example, if you're one out of two women in a several hundred member social club for veterans, uh, you know, it, it might be kind of uncomfortable to even go to the meetings, right? There's not, it doesn't feel very... Excepting, although I have seen some more recent, like the women of, you know, the moose or the women of, you know, some of the other um, military social groups. But again, it could be very intimidating if there's if there isn't any women that you might know personally, and or kind of in this connection, a male that might also belong kind of help introduce you um, to the same so- or social network of, of folks. Um, so then the last person to kind of talk a little bit about is a female veteran named Lisa, who served as an intelligence person um, with the Green Berets in the early 1990s. And she talked a little bit about, um, you know, how her job was really stressful um, directly, or considering that it was not directly in combat. Um, So if, again, if your convoy didn't get blown up or it wasn't, you know, one of the, the world wars then, it's like, you didn't really experience, uh, you know, that's sort of the stereotype. You didn't really experience what war was. Um, And again, we struggled to fit in. The women struggled to fit in, um, you know, because again, we're, we're not, we're not really doing promise the same things that our, our male counterparts always are. Um, And, you know, and so this article just kind of talked a little a little bit about just the some of the and we hear that constant discussion about number one not even identifying as veterans right over and over and we hear these articles talk a little bit about the same thing and how hard it is and this one I think tried this article tried to give a little bit of an understanding kind of in the beginning of of how that set up what it looks and feels like but it is really true and if you think about um you know I kind of didn't think about The networks, uh, the support networks that are created when you come out. So this, to me, doesn't surprise me, but it makes it makes more sense as to why maybe the women aren't connecting after service or post service. And like for me, um, it's interesting. I've been out of the service for over twenty years. I'm an uh, an Army veteran. I was a combat medic, although I did not see combat, and I'm glad I didn't see combat. Um, I I probably would have a different set of challenges uh, if I did. But it's interesting because you don't, you know. After you just sort of for women, we live life and start our families, go to school, start our careers for those of us who join the military early. So you don't kind of think about any of that that you were missing, right? If you didn't know, and they don't tell you there's nothing there for you to connect to. So it's interesting in my experience that after 20 years of finding out that there is there are subsets of veteran communities, whether it's you know employment programs, training programs recreational programs social programs what have you um but you you don't know about them um and then once you connect with them you know for me it was like wow I missed out on 20 years of camaraderie friendship uh you know whatever else you may have needed right along the way um but just at a minimum the camaraderie the friendship the community that you you don't realize isn't there if you were never told that these are kind of the, the things that you can connect to. So that was interesting to me because, and as I talked to other vets and work with more vets, this is how I got into the line of, of, of helping with homeless veterans in particular, uh, four years ago when I got to LA. Again, these are services and programs that are available that no one ever told you are there. Um, you guys, I mean, and, and most of you probably have learned this, you know, which has shaped your reason for wanting to work with vets in some capacity. Um, but it's just amazing. And so this, this article just kind of wanted to give some uh, context as to probably the how uh, that gets set up and not realizing that, you know, kind of after the fact, when you're out um, living life like normal, that you're kind of missing out on some key resources, programs, and at a minimum, a community um, that is there that just far too many veterans aren't aware of. So thank you, Consuela, for this informative article.
5: Yeah, it's uh, unfortunate, but that's the—you uh, don't know what you're missing. You know, you don't know that you don't know. You know, it's—it's—it's—you know—it's a sad situation, and you know we talk about it all the time on this. program. Uh oh. Well, we're gonna keep going. I don't know what that means, but uh, anyway, uh, the recording's like, yeah, you don't know what I'm going to do, but uh, that's all <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's, it's still—we're still rolling you know, you know, the, you.
2: It, it's, it's, it's live, it's recording. Yeah, we're recording. I have, I have no idea what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the Zoom you know, Twilight Zone.
5: That's it, you know, so, you know, it's unfortunate, but we are, you know, but we are putting it, we always put the emphasis on, on that, you
1: know. Yeah,
3: so. or not forgetting to,
1: to, to highlight something, right, to bring, keep the awareness, Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, Martha, would you give me the title of that article again?
1: Um, I don't have it here in the script, but I'm Consuela can give, get it to you. Okay, very
2: good. Excellent. I'll introduce our next guest, please.
5: Sure. Next up, we have Eric Delgadillo and Veronica Lira from Alternatives for Vets. Eric is a Marine veteran who served from 1998 to 2014 during oif Slash OEF. I don't know what that means, but Eric will tell us, right? Um, he is now the executive director of Alternatives for Vets. Master. He has a master's in business administration from the University of California, Irvine. Veronica Lira is the founder of Alternatives for Vets and director of operations with a master's degree in clinical social work from the University of SoCal, Southern Cal, I should say. Licensed by the Department of Vets, Veteran Affairs. The mission. Is to foster public health models in the veteran claim process that helps promote veteran wellness as as they transition back into their communities. The vision that all veterans are successfully positioned in their community as valued members. They're creating stewardship with veterans and their families, and uh, they want to provide guidance and counseling on how to take ownership of their claim process. Go ahead, take it away, Erica and Veronica. Eric and Veronica, sorry. First and foremost, I want to say thank you for for having us, and uh, you know it means a lot to me. Just listening to the conversations, you know about veterans, you know why is it important to to understand everybody as a whole, right? And and everybody's part. I know that uh, uh, they spoke about this earlier in regards to making sure that all these parts come together, so that each veteran has a better transition and they could go on with their lives. And you know. Like every other veteran, we all go through our struggles because we have different experiences. But you know, I came to Veronica one time to literally um, ask for guidance in regards to my claim and figure out ways to, uh, you know, like everybody else, trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now? I go to go to my GI Bill, get my education, go to you know, go to find a job. You know, what what else do I do? They you know, they gave me a transition.